1: And welcome to Attaboy Clarence, we're in February, Valentine's month, and what better way to celebrate that loving feeling than in the company of one of the Sons of France, that romantic spot to which all lovers aspire. Today is all about the movies of Jacques Tourneur, the man who helped to kickstart a revolution in horror alongside Val Luton. I'll be telling you all about a super pair of Tourneur classics later on in the show. <laughs>
3: You can bank on Wings, Canada's top-flight Virginia cigarette. Better tobaccos,
4: better paper, better made. For a mild, smooth, satisfying smoke. Join the swing to Wings.
1: Surely they should be called propellers, right?
4: Wings.
1: Oh, he's back again. Ooh, we got a bit saucier since last time. Let's hear that one again, shall we?
5: Wings. Dragonfly!
6: Wings! For
1: the Yeah, I think that works.
2: Mary, may I have this dance? No, I'm sorry. Helen, may I have this? No, I'm this?
0: sorry. Lois, may I have... No, ha- I'm Hey, may I? No. Ruth,
2: may? No. Jane! No. Why won't the girls dance with me?
1: Ooh, I'm getting deja vu.
2: Why won't the girls dance with me? B.O.
7: Yes, B.O. can make you unpopular not only on the dance floor, but at home, at work, everywhere. Don't risk offending. Take a daily bath with a new life boy.
8: You'll notice right away. Its clean scent tells you it stops B.O. Then in double quick time,
7: that scent will go. That's because Life Boy now is new, different. Here's why New added ingredient. No vanishing scent. Same protective lather. From head to toe, it stops B.O. Get several cakes of the new Life Boy today. Remember, it's the only soap especially made to stop B.O.
1: What a different youth I might have had. Maybe you have a question, well throw it into the question pot, strangely there is no next line. Well, maybe I'll read your question, out on this show or maybe not, now here's someone with a handbell. Yes, a dive into the question pot once more, and the first query I pluck from the depths comes from Simon O'Hagan, who asks... I was wondering if you have a favourite non-Golden Era performance by one of the icons of the Golden Era. Betty Davis in The Wales of August. Catherine Hepburn in On Golden Pond. James Stewart in Airport 77. Um, forget I said that last one. Let's pretend that didn't happen, but you get the idea. O'Hagan. Thanks, Simon. Great question. I think Cagney's turn in Ragtime was a bit fabulous. And Angela Lansbury was still kicking ass and taking names in Murder, She Wrote. But I have to say, I think my personal favorite, and I'm not expecting anyone to agree with me, is probably Audrey Hepburn's role in Always, directed by Steven Spielberg. She plays the same kind of role that Claude Rains played in Here Comes Mr. Jordan, that kind of guiding angel who helps Richard Dreyfus after he's killed in a plane crash. I really like that movie, although I know most people think it's a bit of a dud. Great question, though, and have a Canterbury. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want.
7: If you're looking for a ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of... Canton and Canton Tent I have acquired over a very long career. Canton and make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you, I will find you,
1: and I will tend to bury you." Another question here from Gary Bond, who asks, "...whilst watching Bride of Frankenstein while waiting for my newborn's next late-night feed, I came to the conclusion that Gavin Gordon's performance is the most over-the-top acting I've ever seen in a good film, and yes, I am including Una O'Connor in everything she's in. SACRILEGE! Can you let me know of any worse examples of overacting in good films? Hmm, that's a tricky one. I think I might be better off throwing that one out to the audience. Overactors? I can certainly recall a few underactors, folks who gave terribly stiff performances in movies. Donald Cook in The Public Enemy springs to mind. But if you want really wooden, then who else could it be but the old Brighton Strangler himself? (laughs) Can you think of any serious overactors? You're a clever lot, so I'm sure you'll think of dozens I've overlooked. Send them along with any questions to the question pot. Just go to attaboyclarence.com, scroll down the homepage, and drop your flipping questions into the pot and its dank dark belly. So throw your flipping questions into the shiny question pot. You might hear your question next time. So until then, get your thinking cap on for the question pot. okay that's the end well on to some movies then and today we're in a french state of mind jacques tourner is one of those names you always tend to see on movies that surprise you cat people i walked with a zombie the leopard man out of the past night of the demon circle of danger the list goes on Tourneur was a genius at turning even the most humdrum of scenes into something so delightfully intriguing that under his stewardship, stories really did spring to life. So it's about time he got his moment in the sun today. First up, Hedy Lamarr, Paul Lucas and George Brent head the bill in 1944's Experiment Perilous, a gripping little melodrama with a sinister edge. It's of course given a far more ominous atmosphere because it's directed by Tourneur. A couple of interesting production notes before we go in. This was originally to star Cary Grant in the George Brent role, and it had apparently moved quite far along in production by the time Tourneur took over and Grant dropped out. While it certainly would have been an interesting film with Cary Grant in the lead, it is a period film, and we all know how badly he suffered every time he made one of those. Secondly, imagining Grant in this made me instantly think of Hitchcock and what he could have done with this film. We'll get on to that in a while. For now, our story begins with Dr. Bailey, played by George Brent, on a train journey where he meets a mysterious older lady named Sissy. I remember
8: clearly everything that happened that night, for that was when it started. Innocently enough, on an eastbound train. It was in the early spring of 1903, to be exact and the train was plowing through a heavy storm. I had been napping and I awoke to find her watching me, smiling, a bird-like sort of little woman. But behind that smile, I thought I could see something of terror in her eyes. She was badly frightened by the storm and she asked me if she could sit by me. She said it would make her feel safer. I reassured her to the best of my ability and wondered vaguely if she were mentally ill. Found out later that she was nothing of the sort.
1: It's all very gothic, it's all very ominous, it's all very narraty. Sissy mentions her brother Nick, played by Paul Lucas and his wife Alida, played by Hedy Lamarr, of whom Sissy is incredibly fond. When Sissy dies suddenly, Dr. Bailey finds himself intrigued by the dark hints she was making and decides to visit the family. There, he meets and falls immediately in love with Alida, and just in time too. You see, Nick is convinced that his beautiful wife is slowly going mad and asks for Dr. Bailey's help.
8: You might as well have it,
1: frankly. I'm
8: afraid, I'm almost convinced that leader, that my wife,
4: is out of her mind. What makes you think so? Of course, this is very embarrassing for me. But I must know the truth. I will tell you about her strangeness and then... I want you to see her on a friendly basis. She took a fancy to you, you know. She will suspect nothing.
8: She thinks you were quite taken with her, as a matter of fact. And then after a time, if if you think, if it appears to you that it is merely a case of nerves, or she is not imagining these things. Well. Suppose you tell me just exactly what it is that she or you imagine. I imagine? Oh, I see. Course, that would occur
1: to you. But the more Dr. Bailey investigates, the more he becomes convinced that it isn't a leader who's the mad one. She's being slowly driven out of her mind by the increasingly unhinged Nick, who's even taken to conditioning their young son with some very malicious bedtime stories.
4: All the witches who go about that business
2: when it gets dark, the witching business, ugly witches. And the more
1: beautiful they are, when the sun is
2: up, the blacker and uglier they become when it gets dark. And
1: what they want are little boys like you.
2: Not me, Papa.
1: Oh, no, not you. And you know why? Why? Because Papa knows all about witches. Papa put up magic bars to keep you safe. But you mustn't tell. It must be a secret.
4: You mustn't tell Diria or your mother, never. is an ugly witch, isn't she? Yes. But not so dangerous as a beautiful witch they are the really dangerous ones
2: mommy's
1: beautiful if this sounds familiar to you then it should 1944 saw not just the release of this movie but also gaslight starring ingrid bergman which is essentially the same concept but which takes the story in very different directions Tourneur himself had just finished working on his legendary trio of movies with Val Luton, and you can definitely see the Luton formula working here. There are shadows within secrets within shadows within secrets, and it has that clean, pure air of a Luton thriller. Characters are very quickly established so that the horror can commence. It also features some bravura direction from Jacques, particularly in the final act, which has bullets whizzing around, aquariums being shattered, explosions, lethal flames, and a real sense of increasing menace, I think Tourneur's direction of the film is its best point. It's not a bad film, it has a lot going for it, but it does take its sweet time in telling what should have been a far snappier story. I think Hedy Lamar has been way better than this, she essentially plays a very pretty zombie, being manipulated around her life by her evil husband. And there's no sense of a payoff at the film's conclusion, which is an odd choice. We're left to hope she recovered and became a functioning person again, but it did make me wonder why she was cast. There's none of her trademark pop and crackle. All in all, a pretty decent melodrama with a thriller edge that I believe would have been a far better film if Alfred Hitchcock and Alma Revel had scripted the thing for Tourneur. It definitely has that air of Rebecca crossed with Spellbound and the Paradine case to it. And while I do think Turner directs it splendidly, it could easily lose 20 minutes and be a better movie. Solid little intrigue though, do check it out. That's Experiment Perilous from 1944. Slightly more on the pulp side is Phantom Raiders from 1940. Now, this is the second Hollywood screen outing for one of literature's most popular detectives at the time, Nick Carter. In fact, Nick Carter was making waves on the pages of magazines as far back as 1886, so really one of the stalwarts. His first movie outing ever was all the way back in 1908 in France. The French produced a couple of Nick Carter films, and then so did Germany back in the silent 20s. In 1939, he made his Hollywood debut in Nick Carter, Master Detective, starring Walter Pigeon as Carter and directed by Jacques Tourneur. Why not start with that one, you might ask? Well, for the simple reason that it's actually not that good. It follows Nick as he tries to foil a spy ring that have been smuggling military secrets, and while it does boast an impressive cast, including Stanley Ridges, Henry Hull, and Martin Koslek, it runs out of steam like crazy. It's fun, but it's mostly notable for two things. Firstly, it was the second movie that Jacques Tourneur made in Hollywood, and secondly, it introduced a character for the ages. No, I don't mean Nick Carter, played by Walter Pigeon. I mean Bartholomew the Bee Man, played by Donald Meek. Now, Bartholomew the Bee Man is a beekeeper who's always wanted to be a private eye, so he does what anyone would do. He tracks down a successful private eye, Nick Carter himself, and decides to be his partner, whether he wants him or not. You
2: are Nicholas Carter, are you not? Come answer, false or true? How does you know? How do I know anything? What is it that sets Bartholomew apart from all the rest? Instinct? No. Intuition? Oddly. An extra little kink in the brain, perhaps? Perhaps. But I'm inclined to think you saw that confounded picture of me in professional detective stories, June issue. Well, of course, they did help a little, but we were fated to meet Kyle. I tracked your spoor down the corridors of crime from Dan to Pasheba, from China to Peru. Well, Mr. Bartholomew, if my spoor went to Peru, it went without me. That was a strange case, the murder of that cabinet minister. Scotland Yard called it suicide until you came. Although I should have handled it a bit differently, Miss Selfie, if you don't mind my saying, so. Oh, not at all. And that society dentist whose wives died so strangely until you found the poison sealed in their teeth. Uh Nice work, Nicky. I should have given something to have been in on that with you. I could have saved you many a step. I'm sure you could. But then there were your bees, you couldn't very well walk out on them. Could and would, have. Can and will.
1: He's all kinds of excellent, and to my knowledge, he's probably the only movie character I've ever seen who solves crimes with a load of bees kept under his hat. I'm not kidding. But anyway, the first adventure for these two is kind of mild. It really gets juicy when you hit movie number two. Today's movie, Phantom Raiders from 1940, again directed by Jacques Tourneur, and again starring Walter Pigeon as Nick Carter, and Donald Meek as Bartholomew the Beekeeper, alongside a stellar supporting cast of MGM's finest, including Joseph Schildkraut, Cecil Kellaway, Dwight Frye, Holmes Herbert. Nesta Paiva and the one and only Nat Pendleton. Here's a clip.
6: Perfect.
8: He's always talking perfect. Such a guy I never did see. If that ain't the best knife throwing in Cologne, show me better, Mr. Torres.
2: Gladly. Looks like we each owe Al a thousand pesos, Gunboat. In that, Humiliating, That's what it is. Humiliate.
1: Someone's been sabotaging merchant ships on the Panama Canal, which can only spell one thing. A gang of ruthless criminals are trying to scuttle boats in what's turning out to be a hugely expensive insurance scam. The Ring of Saboteurs is being led by Al Torres, played by Schildkraut, who's already murdered the first insurance agent on the scene.
2: I've got to find Nick Carter. You've come to the right man. I'm Bartholomew, the B-man.
1: Here,
2: have a sample. Uh, Well, uh, we have an important case for him. $5,000. Sir, your troubles are over. I'm Nick Carter's partner. I didn't want to take the case, but you've just given me 5,000 good reasons to change my mind. I'm sorry, but my orders are to find Nick Carter. Why, sir, I'm just as good a man as Nick Carter. Where is this case, here or in London? In Colón, Republic of Panama. Panama. See, Havana, Kingston, Panama. I'll have him there in four days, signed, sealed, and Fine.
1: Now it's up to Nick Carter and Beeswax Bartholomew to infiltrate the ring to see if they can work out just how Torres seems to know so much about which ships are worth scuttling, and just how he's managing to remotely detonate the ships using a strange little electrical
4: box.
3: Is the matlock going to disappear like the other two ships?
4: That's right, Steve this set will shortly send out a high frequency impulse. It's tuned in
2: on those three radio receivers that we presented to the ship's crew.
4: Through the Al Torres Siemens Association?
2: Exactly. In each receiver is a powerful explosive. And when the high frequency
3: wave reaches a certain pitch, the bombs go off and the ship's blown up with all aboard. Exactly. And we collect a half million. Not this time,
1: Al. This is huge fun and while you can't really see the Turner toolbox at work much in this film it really does feel like a programmer he really pulls off a rather brisk little espionage caper that gets that balance between action and fun just right it's helped by a simply stunning cast Cecil Calloway is always a delight to watch, here he plays a villainous scientist who comes to regret his part in the shenanigans, while the great Nat Pendleton plays a lunkhead heavy who keeps being sent out of the room because he can't keep his mouth shut, it's delightful stuff. Walter Pigeon is almost charismatic as Nick Carter, he's one of those George Brent types for me, he looks far more impressive than he acts if that makes sense. But there are moments when he does seem to be in on the joke. Again, though, the standout is Donald Meek as Beeswax Bartholomew, who really gets to chew up the scenery, especially in a wizard little scene where he's called upon to get Shildgroud out of the way and has to pretend to be a lunatic. I would happily watch an entire series about Beeswax. He's brilliant. And thankfully, he and Pigeon star in all three of the Nick Carter outings for MGM. So if you do watch this and you like it, Then you also have Nick Carter, Master Detective, and Sky Murder to watch. And all three of those are in my library now for you if you're a patron. This one, Phantom Raiders, is my favorite. It's such good fun. Rack it up, relax, and have a really good time with it. Now, for your radio delectation this time around, over on Patreon, I did present a radio version of Experiment Perilous starring Ralph Bellamy in January. Well, in the ensuing days since that episode's release, I've actually discovered another version from the Radio Hall of Fame show that I think is definitely better and worth presenting to you this time, because not only does it star the film's original lead, Hedy Lamarr, but playing alongside her, her then-husband, your friend and mine, Mr. Canterbury himself, the Brighton Strangler, John Loder. Now, honestly, how on earth could I pass up an opportunity to broadcast a largely forgotten John Loder performance for the air? Here we go then, folks. Jacques Tourneur's Experiment Perilous, starring Hedy Lamarr and John Strangle Loder. See you afterwards.
7: Filco Corporation. The world's largest radio manufacturer presents your Radio Hall of Fame. From the beautiful Earl Carroll Theater Restaurant in Hollywood, today and every Sunday for one full hour, the stars made great by your recognition of their achievements are brought to you by Philco Corporation. Makers today of radar and electronic equipment to help win the war. Makers tomorrow of products for good living in a world at peace. The list of successful candidates who today enter your Radio Hall of Fame is one of particular distinction, including, as it does, Hedy Lamar, John Loder, Andy Russell, Marjorie Main, Beulah of the Fibber McGee and Molly program, Eileen Barton, Matty Malneck, Harpist Robert Maxwell, and, of course, that permanent fixture of the Hall of Fame, Paul Whiteman. Our master of ceremonies today is an ex-band leader who became that very rare bird a top-ranking comedian developed solely through the medium of radio. His programs have consistently rated among the most popular of the airwaves. He was the star of Republic Pictures' Here Comes Elmer and Hitchhike to Happiness. We've given plenty of reasons for his being in your Radio Hall of Fame, so let's roll out the carpet for the star of his own show, the gang leader himself, Al Pierce.
9: Thank you, friends, and to you, too, Jimmy Wallington, thank you. And a very hearty welcome to the hundreds of servicemen and servicewomen who are guests and other guests, those patriotic war workers who make the famous Northrop Black Widow fighter plane. And to all of you who are tuned in to the Radio Hall of Fame, I sure hope you're all listening. I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, I
6: hope. <laughs> you know, that. <laughs>
9: Al, well, that reminds me, you're going to do one of your Elmer Blurt sketches tonight, aren't you? Well, we, we would like to very much. But let's get into the show. We've got a great surprise for you here, because today we initiate into your Radio Hall of Fame two of the fastest up-and-coming young singers in the country. The first of these is the gal who leaves for New York Tuesday to appear on the Milton Burrow program, Eileen Barton. Eileen happens to be the envy of every Bobby Sox gal in the country, having been the feminine singing star of the Frank Sinatra program. Sinatra. Whoa,
6: brother. <laughs> Hope he ain't listening. <laughs>
9: That's about as narrow as his chest.
6: <laughs>
9: Eileen, Eileen celebrates her initiation ceremonies by singing a popular new tune called Saturday Night. Eileen Barton. Bring her on, men.
5: Saturday night is the loneliest night in the week. Come. That's the night that my sweetie and I used to dance cheek to cheek. I don't mind Sunday night at all, cause that's the night friends come to call. And Monday to Friday go fast, and another week is past. But Saturday night is the loneliest night in the week. I sing the song that I sang for those memories I usually see. Until I hear you at the door I usually see Until I hear you at the door
6: Thank
9: you, Eileen Barton. Some of you fellows over here had the advantage on that one.
6: (laughs) And now here's
9: Jimmy Wallington ready to hang his vocal cords on some interesting palaver about them there, Philco radios. Right you are,
7: Al. If America has learned anything from the events of the last few weeks, it is that the war is not over until the last gun is fired. Whatever hopes and plans there may be for the future in a world at peace, The first thought in the Philco Laboratories and production lines is the war to be won, and the radar and electronic equipment which our boys at the front are depending upon from Philco. Until that job is done, our peacetime plans can wait. Through its electronic research today, Philco is fulfilling the obligations of its radio leadership in producing the weapons of war. Tomorrow, through this war research, Philco will be even better prepared to fulfill the obligations of leadership in building the product of peace. You can depend upon it. The legacy of war research will be finer radios and phonographs from the industry leader, Philco, famous for quality the world over.
9: Philco has carved out a niche in your Radio Hall of Fame this afternoon for Marlon Hurt. Now, you probably are curious why Marlon Hurt, an unfamiliar name, should be getting his laurel wreath today. You've invited him to be with us because he is a permanent member of the Fibber, McGee, and Molly program. We interrupt this program to bring you a bulletin from the Blue Network newsroom in Los Angeles. American forces have just entered Manila. The official announcement comes from General MacArthur's headquarters. This bulletin came from the Blue Network newsroom in Los Angeles. And now back to the Philco Hall of Fame. I beg your pardon. Marlon (laughs) Hurt.
3: Thanks, Al. I'm sure proud of the opportunity you're giving me.
9: Well, oh, now, don't thank me for it. Thank our sponsor. Thank nothing of it at all, Marlon. We're glad to
3: have you. Yeah, well, uh, thank you, Mr. Al. I'm glad to be here myself. I really am. I really. Oh, wait, myself. wait a minute. Uh, who are you here? Oh, I'm Bill. I'm Beulah's boyfriend. <laughs>
6: oh,
3: Beulah? Uh, wait a minute. Who's Beulah?
10: Somebody ball for Beulah? <laughs>
9: <laughs> well, shut my... Oh, well, wait a minute, that's... <laughs> i better be getting out of here, that's catching. Before I go, though, I wish you'd tell uh, how you do it, Marlon. Tell us all how you
3: do it. Well, it's very simple, Al. To begin with, I clear my throat like this. Mm-hmm. <clears> throat> and then, uh, first of oh, all, there's Bill, you see, I'm the lady's choice. Mm-hmm. Then I slides up a bit to my natural voice, my larynx turns over, and this is the fool. I chipped his twice, and now comes (laughs) Beulah. Well, now I am leaving. This fella's haunted.
10: (laughs) I get the craziest mood sometimes. (laughs) 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 Wish I knew what I was laughing at. I get so silly after an entire winter of the love bug gumming me to death.
3: Are you talking to yourself, Bueller, or can anybody join in this conversation?
10: Oh, Mr. Marlin, my romance has reached the dice-rolling stage.
3: Dice-rolling stage?
10: Yes, yeah, sir. Oh, it's a faded winter love. <laughs> I'm telling you, November December just wore me down to a big, fat nub. I feel so silly, too.
3: Yes, yeah, you look a little silly. I suppose you're now going to start looking for some new boyfriends to replace the winter crop?
10: Uh-uh. Now, sir, I'm, I'm going to be the Army's number one competitor. Starting
3: tomorrow, I'm going out on maneuver. <laughs>
6: well,
3: I, I didn't think the Army could cramp your style, Beulah.
10: Oh, Mr. Marlin, the Army is two steps ahead of me everywhere I look. It really is. Is that so? Oh, yes, it really is. Sometimes I think the only thing for me to do is join the Army myself.
3: Well, you can't do that, Beulah. Besides, I don't think you'd have much fun working with men only.
10: Oh, the answer's at leap in my mind for that one.
6: <laughs> but speaking of me
10: and my boyfriend Bill, he's due here any minute. He's a dress designer. Yes. He yes, he's a fine designer and he's funny, too.
3: Oh, I see, a comical designer, eh? He probably keeps you in stitches. He keeps me in stitches.
10: <laughs> <laughs> oh, Mr. Martin, you will sure make me laugh at your joke, don't you? Funny or not.
6: <laughs> well,
10: here comes Bill now.
3: Well, I think I'll leave you two alone, Bueller.
10: Now, don't go too far, Mr. Marlin. It's going to be awful quiet around here with you gone.
3: Well, I'll just walk around the theater. I'll see you a little later.
10: Well, so long, Mr. Marlin, and howdy-do,
3: Bill. Yeah, yeah, let me see here. <laughs> well, honey, shall we proceed immediately to the business on hand of planning a wardrobe for you, or shall we take a quick detour on the road to romance? Oh, you
10: crazy scuddy, you. You ought to think about them other things.
6: Thank (laughs) heaven. But, Bill, tell me
10: something. I read in the paper the other day where they picked Mr. America of 1945. How do my measurements compare with hers?
3: I can tell you in two words, unfavorably.
10: (laughs) Well, is I lost my old figure, Bill?
3: No, you ain't lost your old figure, honey. You just gained a couple of new ones, that's all.
10: (laughs) Well, I was possibly thinking of carrying out an old-fashioned scheme. Could I wear a
6: bustle?
3: No, that'd be canning it out too far. (laughs) But let's, let's quit this tailoring nonsense, honey, and let's slip from the arduous to the amorous. Give us a little hug. You'll enjoy it.
10: Listen to the man, will you? How do you know I won't enjoy it?
3: I've been taking a gallop poll, honey, not a complaint, and a car low
10: Now, wait a minute. Just a minute.
3: What makes you think you're such a great lover? Woman, I yield to the verdict of the majority.
10: He yields to the verdict of the majority. me, <laughs>
6: That
9: man. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Milton Hurt. Standing beside me is a famous Paul Whiteman alumnus, Matty Melnick, one of the top hot fiddlers in the country, who used to massage the cat gut in Paul's band and now has a gorgeous scads of commercials all his own. Matty is not only a Whiteman alumnus, but he has also acquired the Whiteman touch for picking talent. For instance, there's a harpist named Robert Maxwell. Uh, but, Maddie, I think you're the man to discuss Bob Maxwell. Well, Al, uh, when my band was playing in the Rainbow Room in New York, a young harpist came up to audition for me. He was terrific. He played classical and swing, just out of the world. Well, I put him in my band. And Bobby Maxwell is the greatest harpist I've ever heard. In fact, his playing inspired me so much that I got together with him and wrote the harp fantasy just for him. I forgot to announce that uh, Robert Armstrong, is a Robert Maxwell, is a member of the United States Coast Guard, and uh, I knew you boys were right in there pitching on that one. I, I do apologize today. We have such a big crowd here, and everybody is so jammed up, but it's kind of in keeping with the times, I guess, being all crowded. Everything is crowded nowadays. Everywhere you go, there's a jam up of something. These streetcars, for instance, have you tried to ride a bus lately or a streetcar? Paul Whiteman told me the other day, he says, these streetcars are so crowded nowadays is it's getting to a point where it's fun.
6: <laughs> <laughs>
9: now, friends, your Radio Hall of Fame is proud to initiate into its inner circle Hedy Lamarr and John Loder of the screen. Hedy Lamarr is far more than being one of the most beautiful women in motion picture history. Her unusual versatility has been proven in the wide variety of characters she has played. Such as a French woman in the picture Algiers, a Russian girl in Comrade X, a Portuguese peasant in John Steinbeck's Tortilla Flat, a half-caste in Lady of the Tropics, and an American girl in H.M. Pullman, Esquire. She again plays the part of an American in her latest starring vehicle, the RKO film Experiment Perilous, which in the picture co-stars George Brent and Paul Lucas, and which will be dramatized on this program, we're happy to announce. In the dramatization, the part of Dr. Huntington Bailey will be portrayed by film star John Loder, who in real life is married to Miss Lamar. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, you keep quiet. You fellas in the front row, a fella can't. Now, John... John Loder has won fame for such first-rate dramatic performances as How Green Was My Valley, Eagle Squadron, Scotland Yard... And old acquaintance. His latest is RKO's The Brighton Strangler. And now Hetty Lamar as Alita Bedereau and John Loder as Dr. Huntington Bailey in the radio premiere of RKO's Experiment Perilous.
4: Year 1903, that I, Huntington Bailey, doctor specializing in psychology, entered upon the strangest period of my life. Beautiful, but at the same time terrible. It all started when my friend Clag Claghorn, the artist, invited me to a tea at the Nicholas Bederoes. I'd never met Bedero, although I knew him by reputation, an important industrial figure who was responsible for the Bederoe scholarships for students. The Bedereau Prizes for Young Artists, the Bedereau Wing in the Knickerbocker Museum. Clagg had described Bedereau's wife, Alida, as a woman of superlative beauty with whom he, as well as many other men, had been in love. The day before the tea, I went to see her portrait in the Bedereau Wing of the Museum. She was beautiful. And there was a strange quality about the portrait that intrigued me. I was anxious to see her. Clag introduced me to Bedero, a saturnine-looking man of middle years, strongly built and of medium height. He had a slight Austrian accent. And then Bedero presented me to his wife, who was pouring tea. Uh,
11: may I present Doctor Huntington Bailey, my dear, Mrs. Bedero?
0: How will you take your tea, Doctor Bailey?
11: Oh. <laughs> I think he might have a touch of something stronger than tea, my dear. Uh, but you must go through the form of pouring tea, which you do so delightfully, and he will sit beside you for a few moments and reassure you about Alec's appetite. Uh, we have a five-year-old son, Dr. Betty, who refuses to eat as he should when I am not around to tell him stories. I've seen your portrait, Mrs. Bedereau. Oh, Alida is so fond of that portrait uh, that she still wears the same gown, be kind to him, my dear. Come on, Clegg. talk to me.
0: It's not a pose, really. Nick designed the gown, and it pleases him to see me wear it. <laughs> Maitland does paint beautifully, doesn't he?
4: Oh, I don't know anything at all about painting. As a matter of fact, Clegg insists I'm artistically illiterate. But I did say the picture was disturbing. Why? There was something in the expression of the eyes. Yes. I wanted to see for myself if it was the artist's imagination, or if it was really there. Which is it? It's there.
0: Flag tells me you're quite a famous doctor.
4: You're not curious about what I saw in the portrait, or thought I saw?
0: Oh, Oh, yes. Yes, of course.
4: First of all, I must tell you, I came here for quite another reason. Not the portrait. I came because... Oh,
0: no. No. I didn't know that. I knew you were a doctor, but... You didn't seem like that. Oh, please, please. Oh, how clumsy of me. My dear child, what have you done now? I'm sorry, Nick. It was stupid of me. I got up and forgot the tea tree was on my lap. Well, don't fuss
11: about it, my dear. Ring for Frank. Uh, Come on, Bailey. Uh, You must be uh, needing something more stimulating than tea. Here you are, Doctor. Uh, Sherry, Uh, Madeira.
4: Uh, Sherry, please.
11: Yes, you may be precisely the fellow I want. Uh, Did she mention the boy at all? I mean, uh, did she uh, bring it up herself? No. You see, uh, this is the first time an emergency has arisen involving peril to someone I love.
4: Peril? Yes,
11: peril. A leader and I are faced with a ridiculous crisis in our boy's life. He suffers from nighttime terrors, bad dreams, monstrous fears, uh, simply because he's prevented from all normal expressions of a healthy, small boy. Uh, a leader cannot understand that, and there's a very good reason. It's a leader, of course, not the boy. Uh, You're keen enough to have seen that. I still think peril is too strong a word. Mm. Do you remember the lines? "Uh, Life is short, art is long, decision difficult, experiment perilous. No, Bailey. The word is well chosen. And I need help. I
4: can't go on without it. The following morning, Bedero came to see me at my office. He told me he was convinced his wife Alida was out of her mind. There was, for instance, her treatment of her son. The child had developed a fear complex. And then there was the matter of the daisies. According to Bedero, Alida sent daisies to herself from florists, and then had them delivered at strange times, and denied that she was responsible for their delivery. She believed the doctors were questioning her about her sanity, and that she was followed when she went shopping. Nick Bedero asked me if I wouldn't come to the house and see her and place her under observation. I agreed. But Bedero left me with a strange feeling that there was something out of tune about him. Like a chord of music with some basic note left out. He seemed reasonable, logical, even brilliant. But he seemed to be at war. With what? With whom? I didn't know. Perhaps with life. That afternoon, purely by chance, I met Alida Bedereau shopping in a department store. She was seated at the counter. I went up to her. Well, this is a lucky chance.
0: Yes, isn't it? Or uh, were you told I might be found here?
4: Well, who could have told me that?
0: Nick. He knows I often shop here.
4: No, I can assure you Nick didn't tell me.
0: Dr. Bailey, you must think me a strange sort of person to have become so distressed yesterday and... Now, to have questioned you...
4: No. And I'd rather you didn't think of me as a doctor. Whatever reason you have for disliking doctors is your own. And I'd like to be your friend. I am your friend. Thank you. I've been reading up on the Bederoes. I remembered an article in the Manhattan and found it, luckily enough, written by someone named A. Gregory. Uh, Do you know him?
0: Uh, That was a long time ago. Yes? Oh, I don't know... I've forgotten.
4: Well, whoever he was, he gave a curiously superficial account of Nick. And all he had to say about you was that you raised country daisies as a hobby.
0: Is that so strange? What? That I once raised daisies. You see, the happiest memories I have is of playing in fields of daisies in Vermont. I was born there.
4: There's nothing strange about raising daisies.
0: Dr. Bailey, I thought you wanted to be my friend.
4: I do. I do. You must believe me, I am your friend. And I know you desperately need help.
0: How do you know?
4: It was in your eyes and in your voice yesterday... when you looked at me and said, please, please. That was also what your eyes said in the portrait.
0: Nick wanted me to ask you for dinner. Would uh, tomorrow be convenient?
4: Yes, delighted. Uh, Mrs. Bedero, I am your friend. And if circumstances were different... Shall we
0: say eight o'clock?
4: Yes, thank you.
0: Oh, uh, Dr. Bailey... If Nick goes up to the boy, if he goes upstairs while we are at dinner, will you try to follow him? Of course. Thank you. Goodbye, Dr. Bailey.
4: The dinner at the Bedreau house was strange. First, there were daisies in the center of the table. Alida, in a frightened voice said she'd ordered American beauties from the florist. But Nick, with a look at me, denoting that such occurrences were frequent, replied that perhaps the florist had made a mistake, or maybe she had ordered daisies. Then, in the middle of dinner, their son's nurse came down to say the boy was crying, was screaming at her. And Nick, excusing himself, went upstairs to quiet the lad. On the pretext of making a telephone call to a patient, I left the room and followed him. Standing outside the boy's bedroom, I could hear Nick inside speaking.
11: All the... Witches go about their business when it gets dark. Bewitching business. Ugly witches like your nurse. And the more beautiful they are when the sun is up, the blacker and uglier they become when it gets dark. And what they want are little boys like you.
0: Not me,
6: Father. Oh,
11: no, not you. And do you know why? Because Father knows all about witches. Father put up magic bars to keep you safe, but you mustn't tell. And the most
2: dangerous witches of all are the beautiful witches.
0: Mommy's beautiful.
4: Shh. I left shortly afterwards, presumably to see my patient. Nick, who was going to his club, offered me a ride in his carriage. During the ride, he told me how disturbed he had been about the flowers and the boy's behavior. He said that as far as Alida was concerned, he'd come to the end of his rope. I asked him as a physician if he could persuade Alida to come to my office the following day. He said he would. When he let me out, I phoned Alida and asked her to meet me in a booth in a restaurant just around the corner from her house. In ten minutes, she was there. Yes, Hunt. Alida, do you trust me? Yes. You've got to get out of that house.
0: Oh, I'm frightened.
4: You mustn't be. Do you understand... You're not to be frightened ever again. There are two of us now.
0: He's doing something to Alec. And he keeps shutting me out.
4: Please, don't. You've got to be calm or you can't help me. Who was Alexander Gregory?
0: Oh, no. No.
4: Alida, tell me.
0: Nick said it was all my fault. He said if I pushed him in front of that carriage, I couldn't have killed him more surely.
4: How did Alec die?
0: (sighs) Oh. It was the night of my birthday. Nick had given me a beautiful white jade necklace as a present. Alec Gregory arrived with an armful of daisies. He knew I loved them. After dinner, I found the necklace was no longer around my throat. I went into the living room to look for it. While I was there alone, Alec came in. He uh, confessed he loved me. He kissed me. And then suddenly, the door opened, and there was Nick. He had seen everything. He had? Yes, I managed to avoid a scene with Nick, but the atmosphere seemed charged with electricity. Alec stayed late. He was the last to leave the party. Then he insisted on walking. It was snowing heavily. Nick walked part of the way with him, and then... Yes? I I don't know. They didn't find him until early morning. He'd been run down.
4: You didn't love Alec?
0: No, but I didn't know what was happening. Suddenly, everything seemed to have changed. Yes. And then later, Nick came up, and his face was young and fresh. And for the first time, we found a moment of happiness.
4: I understand.
0: And all that time, Alec was out there in the snow.
4: It was Nick's idea to name your boy Alec, wasn't it?
0: Yes. He insisted. Oh, I'm afraid. I've got to get him out of that house.
4: We will. Trust me.
0: I didn't send those daisies to myself. I didn't. And Alec's dead. He couldn't send them to me.
4: My dear, my dear. Do you know why I pictured you with daisies? Because I love you. Because Alec loved you. He, too, thought of daisies.
0: Does Nick know how you feel toward me?
4: Yes, he knows.
0: Hunt, don't let me hurt you, too.
4: Nothing you ever do can hurt me. Trust me, dear. I do. Now, don't be frightened. Just tonight. Can't you do that? Only tonight, because of the boy.
0: Yes, dear. I'll go home now.
4: The following evening, Alida came to my office, as I had suggested to Nick. She had sent away all the servants, and she told me that Nick had gone to Boston, taken a Boston boat. I felt uneasy about this. But I told Alida we'd go to her house, get little Alec, and I'd take both of them to a place in the country. When we got to the bedroom home, we heard little Alec crying. Alida went upstairs to comfort him. And then, while I was waiting in the downstairs living room...
6: It's amazing how you fulfill
11: every plan I have made for you. And you won't be rash, of course, Hunt, for this automatic makes hardly any more sound than the pop of a cork. And it would, of course, prevent you from rejoining Alida. Oh, she's quite unharmed, I promise you. It would be interesting to know your sensations at this moment. Do you mind? The
4: sensations of a normal man confronted by sudden death. Oh, you wouldn't understand, Nick. Not even if you gave me the revolver and let me point it at you. You couldn't feel as I'm feeling. Good, good. I was afraid you wouldn't fight after all. You're mad, Nick. Completely mad. Do you know that? Who knows which one
11: of us is mad. But mad or not, I am a killer,
4: of course. I killed Alec. But you won't kill me, Nick. I know your mind and I can reason with you. Yes, tell me. Did
11: you come here originally to interfere with me?
4: No. And it was because of
11: Alida. Hmm? Alec tried to take Alida too. I knew you were after her when you made that lyrical speech about the daisies. How on earth did you know about the daisies?
4: I didn't. It came to me when I saw her. Because you loved her. Because I love her.
11: Move cautiously, Bailey. I shall. How do you propose to get rid of yourself, Nick? Quite simply, I made a reservation on the Boston boat tonight. I boarded it and left a suicide note in my stateroom. It will be found. Those clothes I am wearing are Frank's, my butler's, and in case I should be seen entering or leaving this house. Frank himself is far from here. There's a matter of an old criminal record. No one will connect me with what is going to happen to you and Alida.
4: I once said you were logical, even brilliant. You are, Nick, but you're also mad. In
11: ten minutes, I shall leave you and walk out of this house. That is to all appearances. Frank
4: will walk out. You will be left
11: to rescue Alida. They will discover we have had trouble with the furnace. I have seen to that. It is a... Gas furnace, by the way. Can you smell it? Yes. The gas goes on and off again. There's a small stove next to the nursery upstairs, and possibly they may find the levers off. And when there is enough gas, and with the heat of that stove,
4: there will be an
11: explosion.
4: If you're and... crazy. Your own son
11: is upstairs. Yes. Tell me one thing, baby. Is that boy mine or is he Gregory's?
4: Yes, that's what you've been
11: leading to, isn't
4: it? Me. You're mad, Nick. Completely unreasonable. He's your boy, of course. And a leader might have come to love you in time. Blast you,
6: Billy. Turn to I'll shoot you.
4: After I'd overturned the table and knocked Nick down. I ran for the stairway leading upstairs to the boys' room where Alida was. Nick followed me. I struggled with him and sent him crashing with a blow to the chin. Then I ran up the stairway. The door to little Alec's room was locked. I broke it open. The room was filled with gas. A small lamp burned. Little Alec was huddled in his crib, his arm around a toy clown. Alida was stretched on a single bed as if she had flung herself there to rest while her son fell asleep. I smashed the window panes to let in air... And then there was the sound of footsteps. Nick had followed me. I flung myself at him and we wrestled down the stairway. Then suddenly Nick screamed... Get
6: back! Get it back to her! You hadn't time!
4: Nick Bedero died in the explosion. Alida, little Alec, and I were badly burned... but we were rescued by the firemen. And when we were finally out of the hospital... I took them away to that little cottage in the country. We thought the whole business was finished. And then one day, a leader received a visitor, an investigator from the district attorney's office.
0: I was told the inquiry was finished.
8: Well, it is, in a way. I'm here on my own. I hope you don't mind. Well? We have the disappearance of Mr. Bedero from the Boston boat. His uh, suicide, if you wish. And uh, then at the house, a body was identified as the butler's. Through the clothing. But I have a sixth sense about those things, and I became a little suspicious.
0: Aren't you rather overdoing it?
8: No, you see, in cases of extensive destruction, there's one identification that seldom fails. Teeth.
0: You found the butler's dentist?
8: No, I found Mr. Bedreau's dentist.
0: You know what you're doing. You're threatening the future of my child.
8: It was Bedreau who was killed in the explosion, wasn't it? Criminally insane?
0: And what will you do now that you've given it a name? You and your truth? No, I won't let you do it. I won't have my son live a life of terror like his father did. I'll fight you or anyone else.
8: Mrs. Bedrow, you won't have to fight me. I've got too much admiration for you. And you're right about the boy. I was guessing anyway. We could find nothing to ask a dentist about... It's all right, Mrs. Pedro. You win. Goodbye.
4: Alida! Alida! Come out! It's a beautiful day.
0: Come out, mother. Come out. I'm coming. Wait for me.
4: Darling, did you ever see anything more beautiful than this field of daisies?
0: Never. Never. <laughs>
1: And that was Experiment Perilous, directed for the screen by Jacques Tourneur, and here starring Hedy Lamarr and John Loder. Fabulous. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Remember that if you'd like a whole galaxy more of these episodes, then there are almost 200 bonus versions out now and available for immediate download when you sign up at patreon.com slash secret along with those you can also watch most of the films i've told you about in my personal classic movie library also available at patreon Plus you'll get a weekly invitation to watch along with me each sunday at film club you'll get your name in the credits you'll also get access to hundreds of hours of old hollywood storytelling with 11 complete series of the secret history of hollywood there really is a universe of old hollywood waiting for you right now and all you have to do is go on over to patreon.com slash or click the link in the show notes of this episode And I will see you there. Thank you so much for joining me for this Jacques Jamboree. I'll be back very soon with more old Hollywood classics. But until then, take very good care of yourselves and those you love. And bye for now.
0: As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places